Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants Inn Chambers. In our podcast series, we are going to discuss a range of topics affecting police officers and anyone involved in the criminal justice system. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com. In series two of episode three of Plod in March last year, I met with Dijen Basu QC to discuss the use of automated facial recognition technology by the police. We discussed the case of R. Bridges and Chief Constable of South Wales Police and Information Commissioner. This was said to be the first claim brought before a court anywhere in the world concerning the use by police of automated facial recognition or AFR technology. This is technology which is hugely advantageous to police forces in terms of cost and speed and capable of matching 50 faces per second from a crowd. However, it raised serious issues with Article 8 of the Human Rights Act, the right to privacy. Since the last podcast, there's been an appeal in this case, and I'm delighted to be joined again by Dijen to discuss it. Dijen, we, we discussed last time there was nothing wrong with posting scores of police officers to look out for persons at public gatherings. So why not use a powerful computer to do this much more cheaply, much more quickly, flagging any matches to a human operator for final assessment? Can you remind our listeners of the basis of the claimant's claim and the judgment of the High Court? Yes, I can. Um, So my theory is that you could have a large group of super recognisers, police officers who are really good at remembering faces, and they do exist. And you have a huge group of them posted at a gathering looking for up to 800 people, sharing amongst them the faces they have to memorise. And it would be difficult to see how that could be challenged in practice. So here we have a system called AFR Locate, so automatic, automated facial recognition locate in use by South Wales Police at the moment. And what that is, is essentially a powerful computer which can match up to 50 faces a second with a database of up to 800 suspects. And so it can then flag, flag up any potential matches to a human operator for that operator, a police officer, to then decide whether to act upon that. So it's a much more efficient way of recognising potential offenders, people at large, vulnerable people, etc. But AFR Locate is a system used at large gathering, and it's deployed using prominently marked vans. Police officers will hand out leaflets and then advertise this on social media. Uh, And what they will do is before the gathering, they'll firstly upload to the computer system a watch list. And that contains a a number of different types of people, seven categories. Firstly, people wanted on warrants. Secondly, people unlawfully at large. People suspected of committing crimes. Missing persons. People whose presence at a particular event causes particular concern. People of possible interest to the police for intelligence purposes and vulnerable people. And that would be a watch list typically of between 400 and 800 people. The database of those faces is not stored as a group of 
four to 800 pictures of people. What the computer does is it converts those pictures into numerical biometric data, a bit like your phone would do in, in using Face ID to identify you when you unlock it. So they all become ones and zeros or, or whatever in some computer code that I certainly won't understand. Yes, indeed. Effectively, the computer won't know what you look like. It will just know what the algorithms do in terms of creating a numerical footprint, if you like, of what your face looks like numerically. Uh, you said that there's always a set of human eyes to act as a filter. But nevertheless, the, the database of the watch list still seems fairly wide in terms of categories uploaded. And there is data there that can be used to recognise people. So how long are the images stored for? So if I attend a match and I'm not a suspected football hooligan, how long would I be stored for as a person not of interest? You're going to be deleted. If you're seen by the system, you're going to be deleted immediately after the event. Because if there's no match, uh, you're not retained. I'm just thrown away as data. That's right. So what the computer is doing is it's got the biometric numerical template for each of the watched faces on the watch list. You go along and I'm assuming for these purposes, Daniel, you're not a football hooligan and you're not on any watch list or um, a person of potential interest to the police. So you're, you're not going to be on that uh, watch list and your, your facial template won't be within the watch list. So what will happen is the computer will scan constantly the people in the crowd at either a match or a protest or any of that sort of thing. And it can scan up to five faces in each frame and up to 10 frames per second. So that gives you up to 50 faces a second. And during a, a protest, you could scan as many as half a million faces, although many of them won't be unique faces. Many people will be scanned several times in the, during the process of a, of a protest or a football match or anything like that. So what will happen is, in, in your case, your face will be converted into the biometric template and compared with the up to 800 templates they've got on the system. There'll be no match, and therefore your biometric template will be deleted immediately. And even if it happens several times during the match, each time there's no match with the... Uh, I shouldn't say match, I say protest. That's probably a better way rather than using the word match twice. Uh, during the protest, you're waving your banner, you're seen on the screen several times, and the computer will turn your face into a biometric template, compare it with the watch list of templates, and there's no match, and immediately will delete the template. However, the CCTV feed, that will be retained for only 24 hours or so. So that's almost immediately deleted afterwards. Um, so the day after the, the protest, everything to do with you as an innocent person, not of any interest, will have been deleted. Right. So the claim was brought in the, in the lower court and it failed at first instance and the claimants appealed and succeeded at least in part. What was the decision of the Court of Appeal and how did it arrive at its conclusion? Well, the, the claim was brought by a man who wasn't on any watch list. He said that um, this system breached his Article 8 rights and it also breached his rights under the Data Protection Act 1998, as well as the 2018 Act, although that's now come into force. It wasn't in force on the days to which this claim relates, although the court glossed over that for practical reasons, because moving forward, we will be looking at the 2018 Act. 
Uh, and he also argued that the force had failed to have due regard to the need pursuant to Section 149 of the Equality Act to eliminate discrimination, in other words, to perform an equality impact assessment. So he lost at first instance, but on appeal, he succeeded in part. So what he succeeded on was in arguing that the interference with his Article 8 right was not such as was in accordance with the law. And so he persuaded the Court of Appeal to hold that the divisional court had been wrong to hold that it was in accordance with the law. And the reason he succeeded was because the local South Wales police policy, which could have been sufficient to be a a legal framework which complied with the law, didn't do so because its policy was too wide. So uh, the, the policy read with the Data Protection Act 2018 and the Surveillance Camera Code of Practice, if the policy had been written sufficiently narrowly, would have been capable of being a sufficient framework. Uh, In his case, he was able to show that it contained two areas which permitted officers impermissibly wide areas of discretion. So the first area was in the selection of who should be on the watch list. Uh, And the the area of particular concern was that category I mentioned earlier, persons where intelligence is required. So that's a a rather wide category. The narrower categories are people who are wanted under warrants, that sort of thing, missing persons, vulnerable persons. One can easily see why they're chosen and there's limited discretion if they are a category as to who you include. But the category I just read out, people where intelligence is required, is, is a category that leaves a lot of discretion to the individual police officer who makes that decision. And the second way in which it was impermissibly wide was the discretion given to police officers as to the locations, as to where AFR locate could be deployed. So in other words, he won on the who and the where discretions. And that meant as a knock-on effect the data protection impact assessment prepared by the force didn't meet the requirements of the 2018 Act. Also, the court held that the force hadn't done all they reasonably could to fulfil the public sector equality duty under the under Section 149 of the Equality Act. Uh, and and they, they expressed the hope that given this is a, a novel and controversial technology, all police forces that want to use it in the future must satisfy themselves that everything reasonable which can be done has been done to make sure the software doesn't have an inbuilt racial or gender bias. And you may have heard done uh, the example in America where research was done on a, on a different system which tended to pick out black faces more than white, even when, well, its error rate was greater for black faces. And and that's, of course, a huge concern, because if there are gender or racial biases, that's going to destroy the confidence of the public in the integrity of this particular system, and then infringes the rights of those who are attending lawful uh, protests. Um, But where Mr. Bridges didn't succeed critically was in overturning the key finding that the divisional court had made that this system was proportionate to the aims being pursued. So uh, we dealt with that at some length in our previous podcast, and and that's also set out in my um, um, police law blog article, and that was not disturbed by the Court of Appeal. So some may say that, in effect, the police in this case have 
have won because all they've lost on is a, is a pretty narrow point. They, they've won on the, the big question of proportionality, which would have been very hard to repair. And they lost on the much narrower issue, issue of the, their own policy and, and the fact that it's too wide. That can be amended, can't it? I mean, a policy can be changed, but the technology not so easily. Well, that, that's right. The policy can be amended. The technology, not so much so. And the the whole system and the way in which it's used and its proportionality is much harder to change. Because it, the, the key point about this is the police feel they need to use it and that it is proportionate. So if they have to change the way they use it dramatically to make it more proportionate, that would, of course, limit the utility of the system. So all they have to do is outlined more narrowly in their policy, the who and the where question, who's going to be on the watch list, where it's going to be used. So that's a, a far easier thing. And then, of course, they need to sort out the DPIA uh, and PSDED uh, impact assessments, so the data protection and the uh, equality impact assessments. Uh, that's, again, a knock-on uh, effect, which is, again, fairly easy, easy to do. So, Either the that particular police force will do it, or there'll be a, a national policy that's brought into force that um, is sufficiently narrow to deal with those concerns of the Court of Appeal. So it's, it's effectively a largely a victory for the force. All they have to do is change their policy. And it means they can continue to use really vital technology in, in fight against crime in a very digital world. The courts came out with about 12 principles in this case. Do you want to talk through those? Yes. So reading the Court of Appeal's judgment with the divisional courts, because the Court of Appeal don't rehash it, but what they've left undisturbed, subject to what they've changed, is, is as follows. So firstly, Article 8 of the Convention was triggered or engaged by the gathering of CCTV images and its storage and the sensitive processing. That, that's fairly obvious. Secondly, the Article 8 rights of anyone whose face was scanned by the CCTV system and, and the AFR locate or at risk of being scanned. So you attending a protest, even if you're, fa- if you're not seen by the CCTV, your Article, rates, Article 8 rights are still infringed as a person at risk of being scanned. Thirdly, using CCTV cameras uh, linked to AFR locate was not an intrusive method of obtaining information. So it fell within the common law powers of the police. They they need specific powers. So although it's not akin to taking a photograph, given the vast amount of back-end processing, it's still not intrusive and falls within the common law powers of the force. Then fourthly, the combination, as I said earlier, of the Data Protection Act 2018, the Secretary of State's Surveillance Camera Code uh, of practice and the police forces policy documents was capable of, but did not in this case constitute a sufficiently foreseeable and accessible legal framework so that the interference would have otherwise been such as, as in accordance with the law. So that can, of course, as we've discussed, be rectified by narrowing the policy documents so that the combination of those three things will then be a sufficiently foreseeable and accessible framework. Uh, and then fifthly, uh, critically, the interference was justified 
It was for a legitimate aim. It was rationally connected to that aim. And a, a less intrusive measure than this could not have been used without unacceptably uh, compromising the aim. And a fair balance had been struck between the rights of the individual and the interests of the community. And so th th this was, as I said, the critical finding of the divisional force, which was uh, of the divisional court, which was upheld by the Court of Appeal. So it means the system lives to fight another day. Uh, and then sixthly, um, the processing of the claimant's image by AFR, those Kate, amounted to processing of his personal data because it individuated him, it singled him out and distinguished him from all others. Uh, seventhly, the requirements of the first data protection principle were subject to the points I've made before about the narrow basis on which the force lost, uh, processed lawfully and fairly, obviously once the policy has been narrowed. Uh, eighthly, the use of AFR locate involves sensitive processing of data, of personal data. Ninthly, the processing meets the requirements uh, of Section 35, 5A and B of the Data Protection Act 2018 because it's strictly necessary for law enforcement purposes. And tenthly, it was questionable as to whether the force's policy documents would meet the Section 35, 5C requirement of an appropriate policy document. So that, that will need to now be corrected. Eleventhly, the impact assessment uh, under Section 64 of the Data Protection Act did not meet the requirements of the, of the Act, so uh, that, that will need to be amended. And then finally, 13thly, if we can get that high, the uh, force didn't demonstrate compliance with the public sector equality duty under the Equality Act. But again, you know, all of these, the failings, if, if you like, are all easily correctable or fairly easily correctable with use of lawyers, which we'd always encourage, and arise from, you know, issues of proportionality, which we would expect to see. Well, they can do essentially the same thing as long as they narrow down their documents that, that, so that the public understand what they'll be doing. So I don't read the judgment as in any way a, a terrible defeat for the force in that case. It's, it's a victory hidden within an ostensible defeat. Obviously, they will have had to pay costs, but I, I would anticipate that they don't want to do such wide processing that they wouldn't be able to narrow down their policy documents to comply with all of these legal requirements. So it looks to me like that would be a fairly straightforward task for them to narrow it down sufficiently to pass muster. Because it is the sort of technology that can be great in the fight against crime, but in the hands of, you know, for example, a totalitarian government, it would be quite terrifying, you know, a government that was stamping down on anti-democracy protests, for example. So knowing that really the power is in the hands of the police to make sure that it's used correctly, fairly, in accordance with the law, it can be a very effective tool. That's right. And, and remember, this is an overt system being used. And there are more difficult questions if, for example, the security services and the police were interested in looking for terrorists or very serious criminals, whether they could use a similar system covertly, because uh, th this country has an absolutely enormous number of CCTV cameras. It's thought there are up to six million from the, in the UK, United Kingdom. So that's a great source of people's faces were the intelligence services and the police interested in tracking individuals. And the question might arise, well, for really serious crimes, grave crimes, which strike at the fabric of democracy itself, 
could those security services and police forces justify a covert use of that massive resource for that very narrow purpose of, uh, of identifying a very small number of really serious criminals? And that, I think, will be a subject for another podcast in the future. Yes. Thank you very much, Dijen. Uh, thank you for your time. That's my pleasure, Dan. Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com.